Okay. Well, class was not canceled today, so unlike all the others, I see across the hall they're canceled, and the class coming in after this is canceled. So I'm mean, I'm still here, but I'm here too, so it's not like I said come in and I won't be there. All right, we have a couple assignments. Homework 7 is due Friday. Don't, don't come in and turn it in on by hand, please. I won't be here. You won't be here. Um, I hope. But it is due. We'll have covered, should have gotten all through all the material by today. So make sure you turn that in uh, through the Dropbox on D2L if you have it already. Or you can turn it in through there anytime by the Saturday morning. Um, exam 4, that's the other class. You don't need to worry about that unless you want another exam 4. I don't see any great demand for it, so I'll take that as a no. All right. And you don't need to worry about that. Homework 7 is the other class, too. So iTunes quiz is up and available. You should be able to do that anytime between now and Monday. And I'll remind you of it again on Monday. And quiz 7 actually is available now. I went ahead and made it available as of today, so it's actually in there now. You can do that on chapters 15 and 16. Or if you want to wait through the weekend or till Monday to do it, it'll be available through Tuesday morning, both of these. Um, the other thing is the Solar Observations Project is now due, is due next week on the 30th. So you'll want to turn that, get that in. Um, if you have not already turned in the lab work that we did, that is 20 points. That Solar Observate, we went through the calculations and the graphs. If you have not already turned it in, make sure you do because that is 20 points towards your lab grade. So it counts almost as a double lab. And I will check them and get them back to you if you get them in early enough. If you do turn them in with the project, that's acceptable. Just means that I can't give you any corrections or say you made a mistake here and tell you what you might have done wrong that you could fix before you do the project itself. So if you get them to me, if you have them today, I'll take them. If you have them to me on Monday, I'll get them back to you Wednesday. If you give them to me on Wednesday, I'll give them back on Friday. But then you're really starting to push up against the you're really starting to push up against the deadline there if you want any kind of feedback. But as long as you do it before the project, you'll still get the, you can still get the credit for that part, of the, that part of the lab, as long as you get that and turn those in with your, with your observation project. <coughs> and quiz 7. Classes are starting to separate a little bit as we get further through the semester there. And the other thing that's due is the exam replacement assignment, which will be due now. It says the 30th of November on the sheet I gave you. It's actually now December the 3rd. I gave you through that weekend, so you're not trying to do, if you're doing it, you're not trying to do two things at, at once. Um, exam grades are posted. I'll give you, back, I'll give you those back next week. So the, the grades are posted, so if you want to see what you did, you can go look at it. If you don't want to see and don't want to know until after Thanksgiving, you don't have to go look at it. But they are up there on D2L for you. I put those up Monday afternoon. So. They are, they are up there and available if you want to look at it or if you don't want to there. You don't have to go look at them. Any questions? No? No? All right. Picture of the day for today then is a nice picture of the solar eclipse that occurred last week. And we mentioned that earlier. We had the solar eclipse visible from Australia. And that's sort of what we're seeing here. And we're seeing what we call the diamond ring effect. So the diamond ring effect is that, that effect that occurs right before and after the moment there is a total, the instant of the total eclipse. So right as everything is, the moon is just covering that last little bit of the sun, or as the last first little bit of the sun is appearing out after the eclipse. So in that last little bit, the moon is just moving over and just about to cover that last little bit. There's a little tiny sliver of sunlight still available, still visible. 
Or in this case, this is actually the other case, this is actually as it's leaving. So the moon is moving in this direction and is starting to just reveal a little tiny sliver of the sun. And the diamond ring effect, well, you can see an idea looking at it that it looks kind of like the, you've got the ring there of glow around the moon that you see, and the bright diamond being that little tiny sliver of sunlight that is visible. Now, the other thing that you're seeing in this one, I'm going to have to turn off the other lights so that you can see it a little bit better, is what we call the shadow bands. Now, everybody, don't go to sleep. All right. Shadow bands you see up here, and they're nicer, nice, more nicely visible on the picture, but you can see on these clouds off to the upper right, you'll see some streaks, some dark streaks, which are not really parts of the cloud itself, but are actually caused by the Earth's atmosphere interacting with that little tiny sliver of sunlight and creating these little tiny shadows. So you get these little tiny shadows that streak across. Now if you take a look at this on you know, your own computer where you can see it in more detail, you get a much better image of these, but you'll see a bunch of streaks that are there that are parallel to sort of the beam here. You see this beam as it's going across that are just parallel to that. And it is an atmospheric effect. So it's something you can only see looking through the Earth's atmosphere. It's caused by the Earth's atmosphere. The diamond ring effect itself is not. The diamond ring effect is caused by that last little bit of sunlight. So it would occur if you were out in the, if you were on the International Space Station watching this eclipse, you'd still see the same diamond ring effect, but you wouldn't see any of these shadow bands. You only see those because of an effect of the Earth's atmosphere as it moves through. Now, solar eclipses, again, this is the last one for this year, so we're done, we're done with big solar eclipses this year. There'll be another one next year. Turn the lights back on. And won't have one around here that we'll be able to see nicely for about five years. 2017 should be the next nice solar eclipse that goes across the United States and another nice one in 2024. So we've got a few years to wait before we get a nice one that will be visible here. Nothing, if you're staying in the Harrisburg area and you're planning on being in Harrisburg in five years or 12 years from now when the next two eclipses are, you're not going to see a total eclipse. You're not going to get this site. In 2017, you've got to go a little bit further south down towards the Carolinas or Georgia. It's the path of totality will pass through there. A little bit closer on the 2024 one. It's going to pass a little bit north of us through, you know, up, up New, upper New York and, you know, south, southern Ontario. So it's going to pass like right towards uh, Lake Ontario, pass right by Lake Erie, Lake Ontario and go a little bit north of us. A little bit closer, you'd see a little bit larger percentage of the sun blocked out if you're here. But if you want to see the total eclipse, you're going to have to actually travel a little bit in either of those cases. So, questions? Not too bad. 14 for the day, for the day before Thanksgiving. That's not too bad. Actually, my other class did better, though. They were only missing one person. So. Maybe they're all taking a class where somebody's giving a meaning, real meaning giving an exam today or something. I don't know. All right. Well, let's go on to galaxies. So between the exam and everything, we're right about back to being on schedule right now, right about back where we're supposed to be because chapter 16 is this, is this week's lesson. So we'll get through most of that and probably finish it up on Monday and then work our way out to chapter 17 on cosmology and then chapter 18 is the optional one, but we'll have plenty of time to get to it the way this class is going unless we get some freak snowstorm that you know, disrupts class schedules again at the end of the semester. And we'll get to talk about life in the universe. So we looked at all this stuff, then what are the possibilities that there's you know, somebody else out there looking back at us? And you know, what is the possibility that there's more intelligent life or life of any kind out there? 
So we were looking at and talking about sort of how galaxies formed. One of the types of active galaxies that we mentioned that didn't involve a giant black hole at the center. We had some that involved a giant black hole. We had some that just were unusually active. These were called starburst galaxies. So they had to do with interacting stars and starburst. Not that the stars are bursting, but there's a burst in formation of stars. So there's a lot more stars forming in these galaxies than you'd expect in a typical galaxy. They're also unusually shaped. You don't see the typical patterns that you're used to. That's a very unusual shape there, here. In some cases you actually see that there's multiple galaxies there and then they're a process of colliding. So you smash those two galaxies together. Again, the galaxies, the stars don't collide, the galaxies do. And that means all of the dust clouds and gas clouds that are tremendous in size actually collide. When you crush those dust clouds together, you start star formations. You actually excite them to form new stars. So that's why we see in some of these cases when we see galaxy collisions a lot more stars forming. And we see evidence again a lot of galaxy collisions. So collisions are extremely common in galaxies. We see a lot, of, we see them occurring quite often in a number of different galaxies. And that's again some of the examples is what we're seeing here. And these were visible, visible. I think the middle one is an infrared image showing the heat of the star formation kind of here in the pinkish colors. But the other two are actually visible light images. Here you don't actually see necessarily that second galaxy. You can sort of see one core here. But the other one could be behind. They might have already merged. To, maybe perhaps they merged together or maybe it passed through and is already you know, out of the way. So a number of different things that could have happened. Galaxies are cannibals. They eat each other. Here's one example we see. If you look in the red, the outer lying image, you actually, you'd see this as one galaxy, one great big elliptical galaxy. But when we look down in detail in the core, we don't see one core, but we actually see three. So it's a matter of this larger galaxy is not just one galaxy. There was one larger galaxy there. We see a larger core. But it is in the process of consuming these other two. If we could come back and look at it, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years later, we wouldn't see these three cores. They'd have eventually coalesced into one. So you'd just see one giant core there. But again, it's evidence of all these collisions and the galaxies are grow through consuming other galaxies. So likely all the galaxies that formed early on were very small, irregular galaxies. And over time, they combined together and grew in size to some of the very large galaxies that we see today. But we see that. You know, our Milky Way does the same thing. Our Milky Way has a number of small satellite galaxies. Some of them will eventually be incorporated into the Milky Way. They'll get too close. They'll get torn apart. They'll get ripped apart. And their material will, con will combine into the material of the main galaxy. Same thing has happened here. Again, we look into that core. When we look in there, you know, deep down in the core, there's not just one, but there's actually three. So here's the core of one galaxy. Here's parts of two other galaxies that are becoming a part of this much larger galaxy. The outer area has already settled down a little bit. The inner core is still waiting for these to combine. And eventually that will increase the material at the center, increase the mass of the black hole, right? If each of these has a black hole at the center, once they combine together, those black holes would eventually combine and make a much larger black hole as well. Now, how do we get the different types of galaxies? This is an example of perhaps being able to make 
a galaxy, make a spiral galaxy. When we talked about the spiral arms in our own galaxy, I kind of told them we don't know where they come from. I can tell you about density waves and how maybe they can remain. How we can, you know, once they form, why the spiral arms are there. But how do we create those spiral arms in the first place? Well, one possibility is through galaxy collisions. And if you do this, this is a computer model that if you collide two galaxies, a much larger galaxy and a much smaller galaxy together, as this one comes around, depending on exactly how they collide, you could actually stream it into a spiral galaxy. So you could convert what was a regular disk type galaxy here by the right type of collision and convert it into a spiral galaxy. So one possibility of way that you could form a spiral galaxy while you get that spiral structure to start in the first place. And the computer models show that that is a possibility that over millions of years during that collision you can turn a typical galaxy, just a plain galaxy with no spiral structure at all, if you hit it in a glancing blow in the right direction you can actually create a spiral, you can actually create the spiral structure. So one possibility of how we think these galaxies can actually gain their spiral structure in the first place. Now, galaxy collisions again are quite common, so this is likely to have occurred in some cases. We do see a lot of spiral galaxies out there. It would only work if you happen to hit them in the right direction, so some galaxies that hit through different directions, if this smaller galaxy instead came this way through, you'd get a different type of galaxy forming. So it's all going to depend on the types of collisions, how you know off-center, on-center they actually are. Here we look again, these are some couple black holes in pictures in the visible and in the x-ray part of the spectrum, visible on the left, x-ray on the right, looking at two very massive black holes that are orbiting each other. So again, we don't see the black holes, right? We don't, can't see the black holes, but we can see the material around them. So you, so you see two very massive black holes orbiting each other. We see not them, but we see their disks. The disks of material that are spiraling into them, they release a lot of energy. We see that. We can measure their motions. We know their masses. We'll know that these are incredibly massive. They're, they're talking millions of times the mass of the sun. The only thing that could be there and stable in that small of an area would be a black hole. Like those ones I mentioned, I told you the black holes would slowly merge together. Here, these are about 1,000 parsecs away, about 3,000 light years apart right now. Pretty big distance. But over hundreds of millions of years, they're slowly decaying into each other. And that, if we could come back 400 million years from now, we'd have one much larger black hole. So again, a little bit, where did these two black holes come from? Probably from a merger. Probably from two galaxies. One's from one galaxy, one's from another, that have come close together. Those two black holes are now in their little death spiral of a black hole, you know, getting ready to combine into a single, into a single black hole that will occur at some point in a few hundred million years. So come back, you know, assignment, come back in 400 million years. Let's look at this galaxy and see. Of course, 400 million years is, of course, a very rough estimate, you know, to an astronomer. 400 million years, maybe it's 300, maybe it's 500. It's all pretty close. When you're talking about that kind of distance, that's a pretty good, pretty good estimate. But it's not means come back 400, year, 400 million years from this day and expect to see something amazing happen. It's that in that general time frame. Now when we look here, we see another galaxy. Again, more evidence for black holes, more evidence for collisions. In this case we see that the core is moving at a tremendous speed. 
here. And when we look at the Doppler shifts, we see incredibly large shifts. So we look at it in the radio spectrum. Radio is that 21, a lot of the radio is that 21 centimeter line of hydrogen. So very easy to see. Hydrogen is all over the place. And when we look at the emissions from the core, really, really close. We're just looking deep down inside this little tiny portion here. And as we zoom in, we're looking and we see a tremendous red shift on one side, a tremendous blue shift on the other side. You're looking at things that are only two-tenths of a parsec away. We're talking two-tenths of a parsec would be about two-thirds of a light year, roughly. So you're not, you're, not, you're not getting out towards the nearest star. You're not even close to the nearest star yet. You're only two-thirds of a light year away. Nearest star is four light years away from us. So that's a very small area to have a tremendous amount of energy being released and to have these extreme velocities. You have to have, that means you have to have that much mass compacted inside that area to have these objects move that quickly. There's got to be a lot of mass there at the core. So that's again telling us that there's got to be a massive black hole. So it's another little piece of evidence. You've seen a lot of evidence for these collisions, a lot of evidence for black holes that have to exist in these galaxies because it's the only way under our current knowledge that we can explain the things that we, can, we see. Why else are these objects moving so quickly? So why are gas clouds rotating around the center of this galaxy at such tremendous speeds? Very, very quickly away from us on one side, very, very quickly towards us on the other. So again, another piece of evidence that there must be a black hole somewhere at the center of this galaxy, and as we think, at most galaxies. Now when we look, here's a whole bunch of different galaxies plotted. And we see how big the galaxy is. This is the mass, how much mass there is in the bulge of the galaxy versus the measured mass of the central black hole. Our little Milky Way is over here. We got a little teeny tiny black hole. We're not quite fitting on that line. That line is roughly the relationship that we see, that the bigger the bulge of a galaxy is, the bigger the black hole. So we actually have a very small black hole for our size, only about 4 million times the mass of the sun. When you start looking at these other ones, you've got 10 million, 100 million, a billion times the mass of the sun, and you're not done there. You've got some of these galaxies have even larger than that, even more than a billion times the mass of the sun in their central, in their black hole at the center. So we actually have a really tiny black hole at the center of our galaxy. By comparison, it's gigantic compared to what we think of, you know, anything else here. You know, a solar mass is tremendous for us to imagine compared to the Earth. So four million solar masses is really big, but compared to a black hole, there are many galaxies that are 10, 100, you know, even pushing a thousand times bigger black holes than our own galaxy. And the bigger their bulges are, the bigger the bulge in that galaxy, the more material in the bulge itself, the larger the black hole is apparently. So even for us here, you know, if our black hole, if it was right and this is the mass of our bulge, we should really be up here. So we should have a much bigger black hole for this relation. Some of the galaxies are a little bit bigger. Ours happens to be one that's on the smaller side. So we should have a bigger black hole even just based on how big our galaxy is than we do. But you see, for spirals and ellipticals, that's the open dots and the solid dots. Open dots are the spiral galaxies, closed dots are the ellipticals. That there's a pretty good relationship that the bigger the galaxy gets, the bigger the black hole gets. Makes sense to us, right? You know, if you have a big, big galaxy, it's likelier to have a big black hole. 
you wouldn't expect to find this big giant galaxy that has, you know, a tiny little black hole at the center. So there, but there is seem to be a relationship between those two. Now, quasars, as you recall, are some of the most distant objects in the universe. So we're talking 10 billion light years away or more. And what we think they are is really, we didn't get, I didn't get into this when we talked about them in the last chapter, but they're really probably the early, early stage of galaxies forming. So what they are and what you see here is there's the quasar, the really bright object at the center. But now as our technology has increased, we can see not only the quasar, but we can see the remnants of the bits of the galaxy around it. So these may be very early stages in galaxies as many galaxies were colliding together and as that black hole at the center was being created and fed. So lots of material, lots of gas clouds being thrown in as you had many more collisions early on in the history of the universe than you have today. Now if you recall, the same thing happened in our solar system, right? We had lots and lots of meteor impacts early on and they've sort of fizzled out as the material has been swept out of the solar system. Well, early on, galaxies were a lot closer together. There were a lot more little galaxies and there would have been more collisions. So that may have been something that was feeding some of these, gal- feeding some of these central black holes, causing these to be so intense because they're overwhelming the entire galaxy. And that's why we thought of them as quasars in very early images. You couldn't get this detail. You couldn't see all this detail around it. All you could see was the bright core of that galaxy. That was it. So it looked like a star. That's how they got their names were quasi-stellar radio sources. So the quasi-stellar, they looked like a star, but they didn't seem quite like a star. And they were very strong radio sources, which was unusual for a star. But now that we can see them, we can see you know, a little bit of material around here, a little bit of fuzzy material around here that's being overwhelmed by the intense emission of the quasar itself. But we think that's a very early stage, so how galaxies were forming very early on because we don't see quasars today. There's no quasars close to us. They're 10 billion light years away. They're 15, 12, 10, 12, 13 billion light years away. They're all very distant, meaning that they're not there now. Okay? If we could magically travel and take a trip to a quasar, there's quite a field trip to get hacked to spring for for us, but we could take a trip to a quasar and get there this instant, it wouldn't look anything like what we're seeing now. We're seeing them as they were 10 billion years ago because it takes the light that long to travel. What do they look like now? Well, sit here and wait 10 billion years. Twiddle your thumbs and 10 billion years later, what does that look like right now? Well, that's what it looked like 10 billion years ago still because now you've passed 10 billion years, but that's the only way you can find out what they really look like now. So in a way, this is convenient in astronomy that we can see things. You know, you can't go see things in history as they looked like thousands of years ago, right? You get the remnants, you get some things, but you can't see it as it actually was. We're seeing that galaxy as it was 10 billion years ago. Problem is, now we don't know what it looks like today. We've got to use interpretation and say, well, maybe it looks like this nearby galaxy or maybe it looks like this nearby galaxy. But we do have that advantage that we know what they looked like a long time ago. Quasars ended very early on, 10 billion years. Universe is about 13, 14 billion years old. So the quasar epoch was very early in the history of the universe, the first few, first few billion years. We don't see any quasars nearby, so if we look even 5 billion light years away, 3 billion light years away, we don't see any quasars in that, in that area. We only see the 
we only see regular typical galaxies. We do see some active galaxies, but nothing with the intense energy of a quasar. Now, that said, the black holes are still there. Right? You create a black hole that's millions or billions of times the mass of the sun, it doesn't just go away. It's still sitting there at the center of that galaxy. But what likely happens is that there's just no more material close to it. Okay, early on, it sucked in all this material, all this material from collisions, it fed it, it was giving off this tremendous amount of energy. Now it's still sitting there, it's just dormant. It's not being fed. You're not giving it any material, so it can't do anything, right? It's not absorbing any. Yes, a little bit, it probably is sucking in some material, but not a lot. Not as it was billions of years ago. And that's why some of these collisions tend to reactivate these uh, um, black holes. You get a collision, you actually send some material into the black hole. Not near as strong as a quasar was, but you actually get some of these active galaxies where you're reigniting that quasar that occurred billions of years ago. So it would be kind of interesting. Could you have looked, what would things have looked like you know, 10 billion years ago when there were these quasars were all over the place? It would have been a very different universe than what we see today. But they're still there, and that's the key point, is that they're, they're, they don't go away. We can't just make this black hole disappear. Once it forms, it's there, and it's going to stay there. And if we go back and look at it in a billion years, it's still going to be a black hole there. It's not just going to disappear or fade away. So we think that pretty much every galaxy, maybe some of the little tiny ones don't have a black hole at the center, but pretty much every galaxy would have a black hole, and in fact a very massive black hole, at the center of that galaxy. But we don't see any, we don't see them today just because they're not being, we're not feeding them. We're not giving them any food. They're just sitting there nice and quiet, waiting for their, waiting for their next, waiting for their next meal. All right, so how do we think galaxies form? Well, when we look back at the earliest galaxies, when we look, and again, we can look back in time. I can see what galaxies looked like 12 billion years ago because we can look 12 billion light years away and see galaxies there. And when we do, we tend to see very small irregular galaxies. We don't see these great big spirals or great big ellipticals that we see today. So this sort of is, um, we looked at the tuning fork diagram before and I told you that's not how galaxies evolve. It was originally thought that that might be the case, but it is now not. This is more the pattern by which we think galaxies are forming right now and creating, creating into larger galaxies. So you get small galaxies merging together and you'd get those small galaxies merging into somewhat larger galaxies, starting to create a black hole at the center, right? As more material has been pushed there, eventually you push it over that mass limit and there's nothing else to be able to be formed. Then you can get some of these combining together and this is what we believe form the quasars. So you start to form these lar slightly larger galaxies as they collide together. The black holes have formed, now we're forming bigger black holes, we're feeding those black holes, they're getting a lot of energy and you start to form what we call a quasar. So then you have form the quasars. Again, this was very early in the history, the first few billion years of the history of the universe. Now then you have two choices once you've formed a quasar. You can either have what you'd call a minor merger, right? It means you've got a quasar here and you've got a little one of those little tiny galaxies that hadn't combined yet, that they combine together that would form something like a Seifert galaxy that would become a spiral. So you'd get a collision here, perhaps colliding the right way to form spiral arms and still leaving lots of gas and dust around. And then the Seifert galaxy, again, a little more energetic than a typical galaxy, and that would slowly wind down to the normal spiral galaxies that we see today. 
So that's one option. You take the quasar and you collide it with a small, a real little galaxy. The other thing you can do is have a, very, a major merger. Smash two big galaxies together, two big quasars together. So quasar, quasar, big giant black holes. You combine those two together and you get what we call radio galaxy or sometimes also known as a blazar. So you're smashing these two great quasars together at once, combining them and emitting a tremendous amount of energy all at once. Large impact, all of this gas and dust goes into star formation almost immediately. Meaning that here we had a little bit of star formation but lots of gas and dust was left over to still be forming stars. Here in this major impact, you use up all the gas and dust in the galaxies. And there's nothing left over. That leads you to when that calms down, right? Here's when we see it as that elliptical gal as that blazar radio galaxy with the jets shooting out. Once that calms down over billions of years, we get a normal elliptical galaxy where there is no gas and dust to form stars. So a matter again of how we think that the galaxies could go from one to another. That you can go from these little tiny irregular galaxies and can you turn them into a spiral galaxy? Can you turn them into an elliptical galaxy over the course of a number of different mergers of galaxies? And this is one way we think it can be done is by galaxy collisions. Again, the galaxy collisions are quite common so we see them very often occurring. And we think that you know, over these different processes you can form the different types of galaxies that we do see today. All right, out to the big scales of the universe. So we've, we've been looking at the little bits of the universe, right? We've just been looking at the very small areas right around us. We mentioned our local group. You see our local group is labeled on this. If you find it right about in the middle of that cube, kind of sitting there in the middle is a little tiny dot. There's us. That's not our planet. That's not our sun. That's our whole group. That's a group of 45 galaxies that make up our local group. So that's the whole Milky Way galaxy, the whole Andromeda galaxy, M33, which is the other one over by Andromeda, and a whole bunch of little galaxies. That, that's all there. So making us all feel really, really small right now, right? You know, this, not the Earth, not the solar system, not just our area of the galaxy, but a whole, a whole chunk of galaxies between ours and, and galaxies that are millions of light years away are this little tiny dot at the center. The other objects there are more galaxy clusters. So we live in what we call the local group. We're right on the edge of one of these giant clusters. But there are these tremendous galaxy clusters that are much larger. So we're actually considered a part of what we call the Virgo supercluster. That's this giant cluster over here. So within this outline are a tremendous number. We're talking the Virgo cluster itself has thousands of galaxies, but there's more to it when we're talking about the supercluster. You're talking about tens of thousands of galaxies in that whole area. We're sort of at the very edge of, par of part of that, of that cluster. So this is kind of a three-dimensional map trying to put everything into space. The names in some cases should sound familiar because they're directions on the sky. They're constellations. Right? The Virgo cluster is so named because it happens to be from viewed on Earth in the direction of the constellation of Virgo. Perseus happens to be in the direction of the constellation of Perseus. Pegasus, um, Camelopardus, Coma, Hydra, Centaurus, Pavo, they're all different constellations and they just happen to be that direction in the sky. So that's the direction in the sky and that's what we happen to be located as part of that supercluster. But we see that as we had stars grouping into clusters, galaxies group into clusters, 
and even those clusters tend to group together. So we end up getting areas where there's lots of galaxies combined, lots of galaxies together, and there's other areas, big voids, where there's not a lot of galaxies. So the galaxies tend to group together as well at this scale. And we're talking about things that are relatively big. This is 100 million parsecs, 300 million light years across. Again, tremendous, but nothing compared to the size of the universe. We're still looking at our relatively local area, even looking at 300 million light years. Because recall, 14 billion light years for the extent of the universe. 300 million, 300 million out of 14 billion is a relatively small percentage still. We're still looking at our own local area in the entire universe. So if we go back a little bit again, here's the Virgo cluster again. Again, all of this is looking as it stretches across the sky. You're going from Ursa Major way up in the north down to Centaurus. That's just all reference points to us here on the, on the Earth. But that's just plotting out where the galaxies tend to come out. Again, we're looking at very small areas. We're looking at just this one cluster. And you again see that galaxies tend to group together. There's the Virgo cluster. So a whole bunch of galaxies there. That was thousands of galaxies, but there's another grouping over here. You start to see how patterns start to form. We see groupings where there's lots of galaxies, lots of galaxies, lots of galaxies, a few galaxies, hardly anything, hardly anything, hardly anything up there. And that is a pattern that we'll see as we get further and further out in the universe. The galaxies tend to group together and give us this sort of appearance that there's some areas where we get lots of galaxies and other areas where there's great voids where there's almost nothing. You know, big chunks of space here. And remember how empty our solar system was, right? We did our solar system and it was, you know, Earth here and Moon in the back of the Earth, Earth and Moon in the back of the room, or Sun in the Earth. I mean it was Sun in the Earth was down the hall. This is talking on much larger scales. Don't forget, we're, you know, we're part of one of these little tiny dots that would be a galaxy. We're some little thing in that. There's these whole areas, whole blocks of this. Millions of parsecs where there's absolutely nothing in terms of galaxies. Hardly any or to very few to, to almost no galaxies. Now, going out to these bigger scales, we start to see a little bit of areas. And I've been mentioning the walls and the voids. So you have the clusters. We actually get some that form into a great wall here. So a great wall of galaxies. Again, not as in a big wall as we think of on Earth, but a big stru structure of galaxies stretching across the universe, some going up and down, galaxies here very close to us, others further away, there's more clusters here. But you start to see galaxy clusters, walls, voids, big areas where there's no galaxies. So even relatively close to us, here's us here, we're at the center. Not that we're at the center of anything, but we're plotting everything is moving away from us. Doesn't mean we're at the center of anything. There is no center. Break the hint for the next, spoil the next chapter, but there, there is no center to, center to the universe. So, but we plot us at the center because that's where we are. We see everything from us. But we see even relatively close to us, there's a big chunk over here where there's no galaxies. Here's another big gap, there's no galaxies. But there's a whole bunch right here. So if I were to take you know, a circle and draw a circle here, depending on where I put it, I can get either no galaxies or I can get a whole bunch of galaxies depending on where they happen to be. So we do see some structures on these smaller scales. Smaller scales meaning hundreds of millions of parsecs several hundreds of millions of light years, 300 to say 600 million light years, where you actually start to see these structures occur. When we look at bigger structures, bigger, bigger, then these structures start to disappear. We start to fade out into the general view. And that's what you're seeing in this one. 
Here we've got, looking at about 11,000 galaxies towards the north, 12,000 galaxies towards the south. Each of those little dots on there is now a galaxy. I know. Make us feel so little right before Thanksgiving, right? So each of these little dots is a different galaxy. But now you start to see there is no big structure. Okay? There's no big line. I mean, there's some little structures when you're looking down at these smaller scales. But when you look overall, if I draw a nice big circle in any place, I'm getting about the same. I'm getting some voids and some filaments, some areas, some of these walls that are forming. But there's not a big difference wherever I look in the universe. If I look here, or I look here, or I look here, I don't see a whole lot of difference. Except for one place, right? When you look out towards the edge here, well, if I look here, there's a lot more galaxies there than there are here. Well, this is us, right, in the middle, looking north and south. The only reason we don't see them here is that this is a distance. So as we're looking hundreds, 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 up to a thousand, million, a thousand megaparsecs away, a billion parsecs away, it gets hard to see those galaxies. So yes, there is a drop-off in the number of galaxies that you see as you look further away. Not because there's fewer galaxies there, but because the galaxies that are there are harder to find. They're fainter, they're further away, they're not going to be as bright, and you're only seeing the brightest of the galaxies. When you look in closer, you tend to see more of those. We did the same thing with the, the stars around us. When we look at the stars around us, we see all sorts of stars. If we look at the nearest stars, there are lots of these little tiny faint stars. When we look at stars in general, when we're trying to look far away, just the typical stars in the sky are really bright stars. Well, that's what we're seeing here. You're seeing only the brightest of the galaxies because we just can't see the faintest, faintest ones yet. So that's, the one, that's one structure you see, but that's understood. That's not really anything to do with the universe. That's just having to do with our equipment. But anywhere else you look in, you know, specific areas here, Versus here at the same distance, there's really not a big difference. You don't see these great walls that stretch out across the very large scales of the universe and anything that goes like this. There's really no structure when you get out to the very largest scales. There is no structure. And we'll come back to this again at the beginning of the next chapter and sort of as our lead into cosmology. So we're sort of ending here looking at very large scales. But when we come back to the next chapter, then we'll look at that, we'll look at that a little bit more. Now, how do we learn about the universe? This is one way we can actually learn about some of the parts of the universe as, they, as light travels from things, from outer areas to us. Quasars, remember, they're all at least 10 billion light years away, so nothing is very close to us. But that light has traveled 10 billion light years to get to us. It means it's traveled through a lot of very interesting and diverse places to get here today, right? Or at the time we're observing it. So if we can look and we can study that light, we can learn about the areas that it's traveled through. You know, if you travel through you know, South America, travel through Africa, travel through Asia and walk through them, you can probably learn some interesting things by studying the little bits that you know, cake up on your shoes or collect on your clothing as you do those travels. Well, the light is traveling through all these other interesting places too. And you can actually learn some things about what the universe is like between, you know, here's the quasar way out here, way off in the distance, as that light travels to us, way over here, you know, in the Milky Way galaxy, we don't just see that light, but we can also learn about what things are like in between. What is it like along this path that it had to travel in order to get to us? 
So we can learn about 10 billion light years worth of space by studying the light of a quasar. Or anything that's that distant away. Quasars are just nice because they're so nice and bright. We can see them from great distances. So what we see is something like this. Pretty, huh? No. What it is is that this is one of the lines of hydrogen. We talked about the Balmer lines. The Lyman lines are the ones that occur in the ultraviolet. So they're actually supposed to be in the ultraviolet. But when we're talking about a quasar, those lines can actually shift. And this line that should be way down here at 122 nanometers, way off in the ultraviolet, if that quasar is receding from us fast enough at a high enough velocity, instead of being visible there, now all of a sudden it's visible at you know, 5, 600, right in the middle of the visible part of the spectrum. So, appears in the visible, but we can also learn about the light by looking at all these different absorption lines in between us and it. So, here's where that hydrogen line is coming from the quasar, but we also see the absorption of hydrogen from all these other gas clouds that happen to be between us and the galaxy. So there might be a gas cloud here, and one here, and one here, and one here, and one here. And because this is supposed to be 10 billion light years long, there's a heck of a lot more than I'm going to possibly draw on here. But each time it passes through this, what does it do? It absorbs out a little bit of light. right? It's going to create a little absorption line. So it's absorbing out a little bit of the light as the energy passes through that cloud. But this is going at one speed, right? The quasar is moving at one very high speed away from us. This is very far away. Gas cloud is moving almost as fast as the quasar, but not quite. A little bit slower than the quasar. So it's not shifted, its lines aren't shifted quite as much. So we get one line here, very close to where the quasar is. And each of those gas clouds would be progressively shifted less and less. Until you get to the ones that are right next to us, and you start to see the ones that are hardly shifted at all. So we can actually look at this for a number of different galaxies and learn something about you know, how these gas clouds are distributed out through intergalactic space over not just you know, our galaxy, but over 10 billion light years worth. Ugh, there we go. Over 10 billion light years worth. So we can study that light. That same light that traveled through the left the quasar had to travel through all these different clouds, had to travel through thousands of different clouds, each of them at a different point in the universe, so moving away from us at a different speed, meaning that we get all these different lines. So this pattern of lines is actually very interesting to astronomers because it tells us how much absorption will tell you how much material is there. It's a very dense cloud. You're going to absorb a lot of the light. If it's a very diffuse cloud, you might get somewhere it only absorbs a little bit of the light. There wasn't enough hydrogen there to absorb everything that was coming from the quasar. So it tells us something about the material that exists out there in the universe at these very, very large distances. And I should have said, I didn't, I didn't call it by name there. Let me go back one. But it's called the absorption line forest, the little forest of absorption lines that we see in the spectrum. From where the light is being emitted, at this incredible velocity, working back, this great forest, all the different lines there, all the different trees essentially in the forest, all the different lines in the absorption line forest. Now, here's another one that we had. This was actually a double, nice double quasar. Well, how we had binary stars, why not binary quasars, right? But the thing is, these, these were very similar to each other. 
And in fact, the more they were studied, the more similar they were found to be, in fact, identical. They were exactly the same. Their spectra were exactly the same. Okay, they're very, very similar. They just happen to be close together. But then they were varying the same. One got brighter, the other got brighter. One got fainter, the other got fainter. Something really weird was going on. It's not two quasars, it's actually the same quasar. So it's actually two images of the same quasar. So you have one quasar, one quasar, but they're actually just images of the same, one, of the same identical quasar. And we could tell that because there's, well, you could have something similar. Yeah, you could have two stars that look almost the same, that are the same mass, that might look the same in spectra. So why not have two quasars that look almost the same? But when they start varying exactly the same, that one gets a little bit brighter, one, the other one does, one gets fainter, the other gets fainter, you're really just seeing two identical images of the same quasar. So how are we going to get two identical images of a quasar? And this is what we call gravitational lensing. Now we mentioned this a little while ago, uh, sort of when we talked about general relativity. Right? General relativity explained gravity not as a force between two objects, but as a bending of space and time. And that meant that general relativity made a prediction that Newton did not. General relativity and Einstein predicted that light would bend when it passed close to the sun. Newton said no, right? It's not going to. There's no force because there's no mass involved with the part light particle. Light particles are massless, so you're not going to get anything. So it was a different, different prediction between general relativity and Newton's theory of gravity. And Newton's theory was verified, and, or Newton's theory was disproven, and Einstein's was verified during the eclipse in 1919, shortly after he proposed general relativity, where we looked at stars near the surface of the sun during an eclipse and saw that they weren't in the same position where we'd expect them. They were actually moved very slightly by the intense gravity of the sun. So here we're seeing the same kind of thing. No, it's not passing close to the sun. The sun wouldn't have enough gravitational effect to shift things this much. So what would, it's again, it's more evidence for black holes. So large black holes or actually even large clusters of galaxies, anything with a very large mass can actually gravitationally lens light and bend light and actually form multiple images of a single object. So here's an example of what's happening. You might have a galaxy, you might have a black hole, something in the center, and you have your distant quasar right behind that galaxy. They're almost perfectly lined up. So the light comes from the quasar. Some light going out this way gets bent by the galaxy's gravitational field and comes to us from this direction, meaning that we see an image. We don't see the bending, right? We see the image straight behind. So we see one image of the galaxy there, but more light from the galaxy quasar is coming here, gets bent by the galaxy this way. Boom, we see a second image, and we'll actually see two images of that galaxy. So this helps us to learn a couple of things. We can learn about the quasar itself by studying it. So we can study the light of the quasar, the two different images. We can also learn about this galaxy. Sometimes we can see the galaxy, sometimes you can't see the galaxy. It's possible that the galaxy doing the lensing might be, depending on where it's located, might be much fainter than the quasar itself. The quasar might overwhelm the brightness. So you may be able to learn about this and you can actually determine its mass by looking at how the light is bent and how many images you're able to see. You not only see necessarily two images, sometimes you can see three or five images of the same quasar, depending on exactly how well they're lined up. And in fact, if you get them lined up perfectly, meaning that you have 
sort of a black hole here and you've got a quasar directly behind it precisely, you'll actually get a ring. We call it an Einstein ring. So you'd actually get, if you were looking at it, my marker here, you'd see your dist- you'd see your quasar would be straight, your galaxy would be straight here, but you'd actually get a ring of images. So all your images would form in a great ring if you had everything lined up perfectly. And that's what they call an Einstein ring. It's just another part, part of gravitational lensing of bending the light from these different, from the same galaxy and bending it around a, near ga- a nearby galaxy. So we learn not only about the quasar, but we also learn again about the intervening material. So these quasars help us to study these more nearby galaxies by giving us a way to look and map the mass. We know how much mass has to be there to bend that light. How much it's bent from where it should have been by looking at multiple images tells us how much gravity there must be there and that how much mass there must be. And it goes back to kind of that the problem with the, you know, the dark matter. Where is the dark matter? Well, it's one way of measuring it, which is something else that we'll look at on Monday. So I'm going to stop there. I've got a little bit more on gravitational lensing that I want to do, but I'm not going to get started on that now. I'll come back here and review it and go over that on Monday. So have a good Thanksgiving, everybody. Enjoy. Um, and we'll have, I think you guys have what? Homework due is the only thing. So homework is the only thing that's due before the end of the... Before you come back from break, there are two quizzes you can do, but not, not needed to be done until till Monday. I'll remind you of them again then. So, have a good, have a good holiday.